Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. So we're in this PG series, we've been asking the question, how does believing the good news of Jesus affect my parenting? Even in looking at that question, how the good news affects parenting, I think it's becoming obvious to all that we're seeing that these concepts are universal to every single relationship. How you relate to yourself, your spouse, your friend, your coworker, those you supervise, especially in how you think about and relate to people when you want to encourage them to grow and change or when you are frustrated with them. In looking at how we parent, the gospel has the simplicity, I think, to clarify some simple points that help us focus on growing as people and being better parents as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially among women, research has shown that parenting is one of the most divisive issues. Um, Years ago, one of my closest friends asked me to join her babysitting co-op, and it was made of people that we we knew well. We did a lot of things socially with them. We even did some holidays together. I mean, babysitting co-ops are great, aren't they? You get to exchange childcare with one another. So they had this process where each prospective parent was discussed. Would this person follow the rules? Would they be good for their kids? And then they voted on whether they were going to be accepted. So after the vote, my friend came to me crying, and she says, you're rejected. And I'm just like, really? Like, why? Like, what is wrong with me, you know? And it just hit that fearful place that we have that doubts your ability to parent. You know, why was I rejected? Was it me? Was it my kids? I mean, at that time, I was a licensed professional counselor with a marriage and family specialty. I'd had six years of working with adolescents and kids. I had extensive background checks, so I should have been safe. Um, you know, my house wasn't perfect, but it was somewhat clean. And, you know, what was, what was that? You know, why was I rejected? And I don't say that to say, have you guys feel sorry for me, but just to simply highlight that women can be weird, right? <laughs> and, um... You know, we all still remain friends. I mean, men too, I'm sure. But, um, but, uh, but we all still are friends, and we continue to do stuff. But it was a little bit more uncomfortable, you know. And to make it worse, a few years later, my family and I were at a party with many of these same women from the co-op. And this day, my kids were excited but exhausted. There were 20-plus kids in one house on a really hot day. So one of my toddler kids became extremely frustrated with another kid there. Um, and this child will remain nameless. But he... But he or she um, <laughs> bit, bit one of the other kids. Um, this wasn't something that my kids normally did. Um, but worse, it was the first time that these women had experienced a child that would actually dare bite. So I mean, I got word of it. I took that walk of shame. I got my child. I, who, by the way, can still remember feeling the shame from the other parents about how bad he must be. But anyway, we, process, we went upstairs to process in the bedroom this situation. And it was not one of my better moments of parenting, I can tell you that. I was frustrated, I was irritated, I was embarrassed. Um, So, And little did I know that in this bedroom, they had an intercom, and it was on. So everything that I was saying to my child, they heard it in the kitchen and family area where all the other parents were sitting. So when I came down, I realized that, and I just was like, oh my gosh, whoever hadn't voted me into this co-op, they felt completely justified in their (laughs) choice. So I just said, I'm an, you know, I just wanted to say, I'm an incompetent mom. Give me a shirt. I'll wear it with shame, you know? But, you know, parenting is hard enough, right? Without the extra pressure that we hear, we can feel from the critiques that we can get. Are you doing it right? 
And I would say that nothing has made me more dependent upon Jesus than parenting. And it just emphasizes how critical it is that we need the support of one another. And so when I was thinking about this experience this week, it it makes me remember how much I appreciate this church. A while back, my kids were um, talking about some conversations that they had had with some PKs, some pastor's kids in their school. And um, they were surprised at how the other pastor's kids just hated being PKs because they had felt so much pressure in the church to act right and that they were always on display. And um, it led them to, to resist being a part of church and to have a relationship with God. So I was curious to hear them, to hear them process and to hear if they felt a similar pressure. But their response was like, gosh, it's just a weird, I don't feel pressure to perform or act in any way. I feel so accepted and supported. And I hope that's the experience of every kid in our community. So from my mama's heart, thank you so much for being that way. Because you guys jump up, you guys take weeks off of, of work to go on camps and mission trips and volunteer consistently. I mean, you help create a place where we encourage and challenge our kids, but they don't feel judged. And that is something that we really want to protect. So a major desire that we had for this series was that we wanted to bring more hope and joy to parenting. Our past messages have talked about that we are not solely focused on trying to change behavior, but we want to change their heart. And our goal is not just to have these compliant kids that have hearts that aren't changed. We want long-term change. So today we're going to go into more specifics on how we help our kids and ourselves grow in heart awareness and heart change. You know, research from a lot of studies identify what we already know from the Bible, that a foundational principle of positive parenting is connection. So if there is one point that I would ever want someone to walk away from about parenting, it's that need for connection. Brene Brown, who is a researcher on shame, vulnerability, and courage, um, she reinforces this principle in stating, human beings are hardwired for connection, love, and belonging. Shame is the sense that we are unworthy, unworthy of love or unworthy of belonging, unworthy of connection. So positive parenting has this mantra, connection before correction. So that means that any correcting that a parent must do, it won't happen effectively unless a strong relationship is in place first. So the degree of correction, it depends on the strength of the connection that you have with your child. And this has always been God's plan with us, right? He's always longed for a relationship with us. And in his desire for relationship, he also uses parents, friends, coworkers to help us give a tangible view of who he is and how we live grace and truth. Because connection is our bedrock in our relationship, our personal connection or our attachment with God is so profound and it influences all of our relationships. How we believe, act, and feel about God affects everything we do. So before we try to help our kids have this connection with God, we really have to make sure we've re-examined what our relationship with him looks like. So I put up here some tips um, of what a securely attached, connected follower of Jesus looks like. That means you have a healthy view of God, You have little fear or concern that God would ever abandon you. You experience God as trustworthy and dependable, and he's a keeper of his promises. And therefore, you want intimacy. You seek for it, and you long for it. But an insecurely attached connector or follower of Jesus would be that you're not feeling you are valuable enough to be in a relationship with him. You believe God's going to reject or abandon you because you're sinful. You crave intimacy, but boy, you feel like I have to perform in order to secure that favor with him. Or you become more self-reliant and independent, less willing to rely on God because you feel like he's unpredictable, unreliable, or untrustworthy. And so God wants us, you and I, to grow more securely in our connection with him 
and work through us to ensure that our kids are growing in that same secure attachment to him. So let's jump into some scripture to help guide our thoughts about becoming more heart aware and more heart impacting as parents. In this passage that we're going to look at, Paul is talking about what sin does to every heart of every person ever born. It's in Romans 1, verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over. In other words, what he's saying is God let them go their own way. He let them make their own choice. He gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding of fidelity, no love, no mercy, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. So just to clarify, is Paul saying our kids are full of deceit and murder and envy and maliciousness and heartlessness and ruthlessness and a bunch of those things? Well, let, let, let's see. Envy. How often um, do you have to deal with the conflict that results because one of your kids is jealous of the other? Or strife. Is there ever a day when you don't have to deal with some kind of conflict or problem or fight between your kids? Deceit. How often are your children less than honest about what they said or did. Gossip. Do you not find your kids regularly tempted to talk negatively about someone or insolent, being rude and unmannerly? What, what parent doesn't have to deal with this all too often, right? Boastful. Boastfulness is, is pride with an open mouth, meaning I am better, smarter, prettier, faster, stronger, more likable than so-and-so. And it's good to identify strengths, but not in a way of comparing and put other, putting other people down. Yeah. So the first step in growing in heart awareness is admitting that our little peanuts are sinners. Okay. I hesitate to use the word sin sometimes because it's got that baggage. You know, it was used for me in some un- ungodly, shame-based ways. But we need to own that word back and use it because it's critical for us to be able to identify sin, to know what's leading us away from God and what pulls us toward Him. It's not negative or condemning to talk to your children about sin. All loving parents warn their children about dangers, right? You do this because you love your kids and you want to protect them from the things that could bring them harm. So there is nothing more harmful in a child's life than his own sin. Sin has dangerous repercussions, and to be made aware of sin and its power to destroy is good and a very loving thing to do. So as we look at this Romans passage, um, it's just this classic one on helping us understand the power of sin, and it tells us two main things. First, it teaches us that repeated sin darkens our understanding. We exchange what is clearly good for what is clearly bad. It leads us to not only do what is bad, but we also start approving of the bad. So Paul is talking here about blindness. Sin makes all of us blind to the realities about life and ourselves. Because the problem with your five-year-old is not that he's punching his sister, but that he feels fully justified in punching her. He thinks she's wrong. She's the problem. Um, Your teenager doesn't think coming in two hours late after curfew is a problem. She thinks you're overreacting. She's responsible, and you just need to chill out, right? She is selfishly blind to her and your need for sleep and also blind to the temptations and dangers that are often more prevalent when you're out later at night. Sin can blind us all, and sin makes us think that we don't need others. 
And because sin deceives, we all need each other to help us see where we are blind to the consequences of sin. So how does knowing that we all struggle with blindness affect our parenting? So I want you to pause and think about it. Would you yell at a blind person for not seeing? I hope not, right? You know, Jesus loves sinners, and Jesus tells that parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15 where he is, he, where a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray. So what does that man do? Does he get angry at the sheep for going astray? Does he blame it like, why are you lost? No. Yeah, I just love what Jesus says. You leave the 99, go get that one that's lost. Put them on your shoulders, care for them, protect them. Bring them back to the fold and show them the way. That is connection. That's attachment. So how does knowing that your children are blind and lost in their sin change the way that you think about them and parent them? How does that change the way that you think and relate to your friend or colleague who's struggling with sin and destructive behaviors? Our job is to be the one to go after them, to be that visible version of God saying to them, when you get lost and mess up, I'm going to pursue you and we're going to face this together. So it may be helpful to use a medical example. Like if you were diagnosed with stomach cancer, your focus would not be on the symptoms of cancer, but the cancer itself. So if you had three days where you didn't have any pain or any nausea, you'd be celebrate and you'd be thankful for that. But you still want to make sure that the condition, that the cancer was completely gone. You would never go to a doctor that only focused on the symptoms. You want someone to eradicate the condition or the disease. And so it is with parenting. Our kids have a condition. Our friends, our coworkers, we have a condition, and that is that we are sinners. So knowing this, we're grateful when our kids listen to us. We're grateful that they choose to do right when they get along. We're grateful when they're respectful and kind and actually clean their room. Um, but those behaviors aren't our goals. They're not the solution to our kids' condition. So when those less than positive symptoms come up, like arguing and lying, we're not discouraged. It's just another opportunity that we get to help them know the true physician. How does he want to bring grace to that sinful condition of their heart? The second truth found in this Romans passage may be even more powerful, I think. It connects character issues to worship. Character is something we all want to grow in. It's the ability to say no to the wrong things and right to the right, yes to the right things, right? And from the passage, it, it, we want to develop character in our kids to not be envious, to lie, to, to, to not be prideful, and instead to be patient and kind and truthful and loving. And Paul says in this passage that all character problems are symptoms of a much bigger issue of worship. So the second critical step in growing in heart awareness with our children is getting at what our children are worshiping. The heart of your child always lives under the rule of someone or something. The text says we tend to trade worship of God, their creator, for worship of created things. And that is what leads to character problems, is what the text is telling us, is teaching us. See, you don't have to know you are worshiping to be worshiping. Everything we do is guided by what we worship, what we delight in, what drives us to act, what we pursue with amazement and wonder and awe in life, what forms the meaning for our life, our identity, our sense of security in life, whatever's the core focus of craving to give us hope and joy and meaning in life, that is what we're worshiping. All of those things are designed to ultimately lead us to our creator and worship, to seek help that only God can give. But functionally, we often worship something different. We get focused on the created things rather than God. So from the earliest moments, your children are worshiping 
something. And I don't mean intentionally. I don't mean self-consciously. But your children will give their heart to something. What rules the heart of your child will shape and determine how he deals with life and relationships and his character. It's not wrong for your child to want to be accepted. If human accept, but if human acceptance rules their heart, that temptation will cause them to do things they shouldn't do to get it. It's not wrong for your kids to enjoy material possessions. But if that desire for things rules their heart, they will consistently be dissatisfied and demanding. Paul Tripp comments on it this way. He says, The character issues in the lives of your children exist not just because they want bad things, but because they become enslaved to good things. You see, a desire for even a good thing really does become a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. The biblical connection of character issues to worship is incredibly helpful as you think about how to understand and respond to those issues in the lives of your kids. Let's think about it this way. Has everyone... Ever, has this ever happened to you? You get home from work and, you're, and you and your kids, 6, 10, and 12, just get home after school and another family's coming over to eat that night and there's a ton of stuff to get done and, and you don't know how you're going to do it all. The kids can see you furiously working in the kitchen as they play video games quietly together in the family room. Now, what's wrong with this picture? For many of us, we'd say nothing. I mean, they're playing together quietly in the kitchen. I mean, that's, that's in and of itself is a miracle, right? That's wonderful. But let's look at it a little bit further. What's happening here? What do we see? It isn't an issue of disobedience. It's not rebelliousness in the kids. I mean, there was no rule that said every time mom's in the kitchen, you have to be helping, right? But each of these kids are old enough to see What's going on with their mom? They can see her emotions, the, the, the frazzled, the stress that's going on, and they're capable of helping take some of the pressure off, but they don't really care. They don't care that their mom is overwhelmed and could use help. This is a character issue. You wouldn't want your friends to treat you that way, would you, right? Your kids are lacking in character to be loving and kind. And often it's these character issues we neglect in parenting. What's ruling the hearts of those children? What are they worshiping in this instance? And in this instance, playing video games, it's pleasure. We get to be doing what we want, so we're happy. Who cares what's going on with you, right? Is pleasure an evil thing? No, it's not. God has placed us in a pleasurable world and created us with the ability to enjoy that pleasure. But if pleasure rules your heart, you will not care for people appropriately in your life. Let's look at another illustration to deepen our understanding of what it's like to parent worshipers. So your teenage daughter spends way too much time in the bathroom. She's constantly stressed about getting her hair just right. In fact, she is posting pictures of her favorite movie star whose hair she wants to emulate on the bathroom mirror, trying so hard every morning for hours to get it right. She's constantly telling you that she's fat, she's ugly, she hates her nose, wonders if she's, her legs are too big, her stomach is not flat enough, her, hair is not, her hands aren't dainty enough, her mood often swings in converse direction to the tiniest little facial blemish. She puts too much makeup on and often wants to dress too provocatively because when she does, she gets lots of attention from the boys. She's constantly taking selfies. In fact, she's taking selfies in the mirror of her taking selfies, right? And it deeply saddens you that she seeks so much attention for what is on the outside of her rather than being really happy with the wonderful person that she is. 
She seldom seems happy for very long because one wrong look, one questionable comment, one bad face or hair day swings her mood fiercely. Your teenage daughter, her problem is far greater than vanity or insecurity or being materialistic. It's way bigger than she's bought into the culture's view of beauty. There's something much deeper broken in her, and that is worship. And you won't be able to solve the problem by limiting time in the bathroom, by controlling the clothes she buys, by taking away the fashion magazines, by lecturing her about making better choices and boyfriends, or even by showering her with praises on what a beautiful, wonderful person she really is. The issue is this girl's life, is, it's a deeply spiritual one. It's about the deepest commitments and cravings of her heart. It's about where she looks in life for satisfaction, for contentment, for meaning, for beauty, for belonging, for peace, for security. It's about what she thinks will give her life hope and give her the strength to face life successfully. It's about what's functioning as the God in her life. It's about worship. And the heartbreaking thing for this teenager about what she's chosen to pursue for security and identity is that it cannot deliver. And because it can't deliver, it always leaves her feeling short of that place of rest in her heart. She's driven more and more and more to need affirmation. It's an addiction. It's an obsession with her God. So she works harder and harder to gain acceptance through her looks. See, until the worship issue is dealt with, Behavior control can only go so far, and that even not far enough. Wanting to look good is a good thing, right? That becomes a destructive thing in our lives when it becomes the thing. We exchange the creator for created things as our hope, our meaning, and our security. And when our children make a good thing into a bad thing and find themselves left short, feeling unhappy, depressed, sad, and lonely, what do we do as parents? We typically as parents often try to solve that problem by helping them find better friends who affirm them more. Or we work so hard to make them happy. And those are all good things. We should do that kind of stuff. But, but if we don't look at the worship issue, what we might actually be doing in that moment is simply reinforcing their misplaced worship of affirmation or pleasure in their life. See, the root of the problem is not the circumstances. It's not the behavior. It's not the emotions attached to the disappointments of life. The problem is they're looking to the wrong thing for their identity and the wrong thing for their happiness. And we, may, we need to primarily focus on the worship of the heart. So how do we help them know their own heart? I mean, if you ask your kids what the, what the problem is, they aren't going to tell you, Dad, Mom, it's the inordinate, my inordinate need for approval and my intense need to always look good. It's because I am worshiping people's approval. You're just not going to have that conversation with your kids. That's not going to happen, right? Your kids need you to help them see what they're doing and what's ruling their heart. And that takes time. And it takes lots of conversations to make those connections for God's Spirit to bring conviction. And conviction is being convinced of the right place to be in life. Third, let's examine the heart. Before we jump into how we how how to how to examine the heart, let's take a look at what we might call some power tools that we 
oftentimes have learned and used in our parenting. We learn them from our parents, authority figures in our past, like coaches and teachers, tools that actually get quicker results but typically don't produce good long-term results. Paul Tripp references three common power tools we often use in parenting, and the first is this. It's fear. So we say things like, if you hit your sister one more time, you'll be grounded for a month and you'll regret it, right? And we power up, which is really easy to do for us when we're big and they're really small, right? But threats are only marginally effective for the short term. I mean, and a child who's afraid of you is different than a child who wants to do the right thing and have a good, clean relationship with you and with others. Because all the child needs to do with fear is become a chameleon or a master manipulator, knowing where the line is and avoiding it so they don't step over it. You use fear as a motivator, and actually what it does is, is it teaches your kids to put their finger in the air and test the wind and figure out you know, whether it's at work or school or the, their coach or their friend's house or at home and, and so they can know how to blow with the wind and avoid the threats. And, and at that some point, that, that motivation of fear never even works anymore because kids grow and they aren't scared of me anymore, right? Look at your relationship with God. For some of you, fear of consequences may have been a part of what brought you to make a commitment to God. But if you stay there, if you stay in that place of fear, what kind of relationship is that? The second power tool we often use is reward. So we get up and we dangle a carrot in front of them and get them to do what we want. I mean, anybody ever, how, how did carrots ever become the metaphor for reward? I, I want a dove bar, a fudgesicle, or, or, or a Kit Kat bar, right? I, something the good. Sorry. So, so there's a story of Taylor and Nick. Uh, Taylor was always a nice, smiley little boy, except a lot of times when he was around his little brother, Nick. Taylor was eight, and Nick, his little brother, was three. Taylor used to manipulate Nick into doing whatever he wanted to do. He would chase him around. One of his favorite things, he'd chase him around. He'd, he'd play the cowboy, and Nick was the cow, hurting him with a rope and a stick. You can see where that one goes, right? So he, he's roping him and tying him up and hitting him with the stick and making Nick put his head through the spindles on the banister so that pretending he was a cow in the stanchions and then having a hard time getting out because his little ears would get caught coming back out. You know, and uh, one day Nick's, uh, Taylor's mom, fed up with how, this is, how he was treating Nick, said, Taylor, if you can stop doing this and be good for the next six weeks until your birthday, we promise we'll get you that bike you really want. This bike that was much better than the beginner bike he learned on. Taylor was an angel for the next six weeks, and his mom, his mom and dad, his parents were so happy. They couldn't wait to give him the bike. His birthday came. The party died down. The gifts had all been opened. The guests had left. Mom and dad were cleaning up while Taylor and Nick were outside in the yard playing with Grandma watching. Before they even got to put the dishes away, they heard T- Taylor yelling, Come on, moo like a cow, Nick! And they looked out the window to see Taylor now on his nice new shiny 21-speed shock absorber off the road steed hurting Nick around the driveway. Reward results only in temporary behavior change unless there's something much deeper with it. Is reward always bad? No, actually it's not. I, 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 I'm not saying you should never use reward. It's a great thing to do, but God, because God does want to bless our lives. I've been reading Proverbs lately for my own devotional time, and the wisdom of Proverbs says that when we do good, right behavior, it leads to benefits. But just dangling the carrot and then giving the carrot needs something a whole lot more. It needs conversation that gets to the heart of the issue. And the third power tool we often, too often use is shame. 
after all I've done for you, this is what I get. Um, or worse, we use disowning statements. Sometimes I wonder how in the world you could ever be my child. I would never have done what you did. Or we make them feel responsible for our feelings. Um, I can remember when your dad was happy before you became a selfish, ignorant teenager. Um, so we already mentioned at the beginning that shame destroys, shame destroys relationships because it can lead us to feel unworthy of love and connection. Shame is temporarily powerful because kids want their parents to be proud of them, right? Um, but eventually shame will no longer work. It causes problems because it teaches the child to hide and, and please to get the praise of their parents rather than be real. A long-lasting consequence of shame is that it doesn't teach a child to learn the skill of how to rightly process guilt and then use that guilt to, to spur them into restoring right relationship and to move forward because they just want to get rid of those feelings of shame. So they spend their energy avoiding rather than taking the time to realize where they messed up and how can I make things right. Shame teaches us to shut down and to stuff things to avoid processing and disappointment well. So whether it's disappointment that comes from a parent, a teacher, or a coach, or disappointment in themselves. So if I don't use these power tools for changing behaviors, what do I do? How do I get my kids to look at their hearts when they're trying to get out of work or craving acceptance or just wanting a boyfriend or girlfriend or being materialistic or just always wanting entertainment? We can help them to examine their heart through consistent loving conversations to see what is bad, their sin, and help them to turn what's good, and then help them to turn to the one who truly can help them. So there's three questions that can help start your kids and yourselves to look at the heart, to see what is truly ruling, ruling it and what are you worshiping. So first question is, what, what are you thinking, what are you feeling, and what are you seeking to accomplish, or what are you wanting? So let's say that your kids are fighting over toys, and one of them hauls off and punches the other sibling. So you respond to the screams, you jump up and say, hey, share your toy. And they say, well, I can. And what do you say? Oh, yes, you can. And if you don't, I'm going to help you, right? Um, you might even add that Christian trump card that we do. You know, Jesus would want you to share, so share. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can give, you give consequences. You know, your toy is going to say goodbye for a while until you can show me that you can share nicely. Those are not necessarily bad things, but they're not the first step in helping someone know their heart. Because how in the midst of their frustration, when they say, I can't share, you try to help them to connect with them in their condition. Because you can say, you're right, you can't share. I think sharing is so hard too. You can't do it on your own. You need Jesus. He is the one that can help change your heart. And he wants to be with you in this. We want to connect with them in their emotions. Because if you want to help somebody deal with emotions, you don't tell them to suppress it. Like, stop being angry. Stop being so sad. We resolve our emotions by understanding them. And if anyone understands emotions, it's the one who created it. So let your kids know that their thoughts and their feelings are okay. Direct them to the rescuer. And listen as you're you're yelling or screaming. Listen to the answers to the questions, to these questions. Like, what are you thinking? They might be saying, I want that toy and I don't want to share it with anybody. What are you feeling? I'm angry and frustrated. What are you wanting? I want to be able to play with my toy and not have to share. So what's ruling in their heart? It's that pleasure at the cost of others, right? So when they can see their heart, that's when they get to see that they need God. So what they see, when they see what's ruling inside, they can confess their sin. And we assure them that there is no need to hide. There's never a need to minimize that sin and but because Jesus has already forgiven them and wants to give them that grace. And that's the connection we're pushing for. So let's apply it to our own struggles. One of the more evident times that I experienced an image of God's grace being with us 
when we mess up was when I was working with troubled kid teenagers in a hospital setting. One of the girls had bulimia. So after eating, she was required to not use the bathroom 30 minutes before or 30 minutes after eating. And this day, she had found a way to get to the bathroom after eating. I discovered her in the bathroom vomiting, right? Protocol was to get her out safely and to help her deal with the consequences of her behavior. Yet in this specific situation, I wanted to risk to be a little more personally involved. I sat with her down by the toilet in the filth of the floor, and as she, as she cried by the toilet, I, I held her hair, and I just sat with her in her pain and her shame and her hopelessness. Now, if you know me, it's a miracle that, that rivals the parting of the Red Sea because I don't do bodily functions well at all. Um, so, I mean, it had to be a Jesus thing. But I wanted her to see so much that she wasn't alone in her pain. And as employees, we can't share our faith openly, but we were using the 12 steps. And she was fully experiencing steps one and two, knowing she was absolutely powerless, right? And she desperately needed someone greater than herself to make it through. And these steps are true for all of us. And sometimes we need others to sit with us in our shame and our sinfulness, being that tangible presence of God. So God has used that image for me so many times in my own life when I mess up. And I don't change or I don't even want to change. And I am reminded that he is the one who sits with me in my filth. He never abandons or rejects me in my need. And he wants more for us because he is always for us and he's always with us. So correction comes after connection because grace is a gorgeous thing. The most powerful force of transformation in the universe is the love of Christ. So enjoy the process with your little peanut sinners, right? Um, don't pressure them to um, spend all your time trying to sniff out sin. But when they do sin, you get to remind them of Jesus, what he has done for them and how he wants to be there for them. Come on up, worship team. The parenting journey is a marathon, not a sprint, isn't it? So we need to learn to be okay with little steps and, many, and with many day-by-day conversations. And as you do... The invitation that we hope you get from this whole series is to settle into that rest that God wants to give you, that you don't have to carry the weight of this. God is carrying us and carrying our children. Salvation comes from Him. Just join Him. Let Him use you as a tool in His hand. For all of us, let me ask this question. How are you welcoming God's insight and other people's insight because you are also blinded by sin? like your children. So practice these questions for yourself this week, with your friend that you're talking to who's trying to figure out thing, figure things out, and with your children. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you seeking and wanting? And how do these questions, how can these questions help you redirect your heart or their heart to worship God? See, God has such a good plan for you as parents and for your children for all of our lives. He, he wants to, us to learn to shape the souls and lives of other people and to have fun doing it. It won't always be fun, but the result will be fun. He wants us to be successful at it. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, we just ask that you would come by your Spirit and you would do that in each one of us, Lord, that you would this week help each one of us become more aware of our own blindness help each one of us become more aware and more compassionate to the blindness of those around us. 
And Lord, I pray, even as, as even as Wendy's story illustrated, which is such a an amazing picture of you coming to us, that you would help us be the people who would be gracious enough to sit in the filth of life with friends and kids and and husbands and wives and family members and neighbors around us, that we would be the tangible evidence of your grace in those moments, of you being there to rescue us, of you being there to rescue others. Lord, would you empower us in that, that not only would our lives be changed, but because of how we live, how we love, how we extend grace, how we invite people to you, that this community would be radically changed because of us. And Lord, we worship you for that, that that pressure is not on us, that we don't have to carry that. So Lord, we sing your praise, we worship you, we bless you. Come and do that through us in Jesus' name. Go ahead and continue to worship. So I'm not going to say it exactly like the person shared it with me, but there was someone praying uh, at the end of the service here, just feeling like God was speaking, that some of you in your life have cried out, and this community is crying out. And for some of you, that's been a shameful moment. You look back on some of those moments, and you just go, man, I just am so ashamed of what I did, so ashamed of the circumstances. God wants to touch your shame. He wants to heal your shame. He wants to come and just wash it away so that's never there again. That's a process. It's not always instant. But if that's you, if there's an area you just go, I'm so ashamed. I, I, I can relate to Wendy's list earlier that I just don't feel like God is even for me because I'm so ashamed in my life. I want to encourage you to turn to a friend or a prayer team, come on down. Come on down to one of the prayer team after service and just ask them to pray with you and allow you in that moment to maybe just experience the Spirit coming to you and speaking to you and beginning to touch that and beginning to heal that. If you've got a, another prayer need of, of healing or any other thing, please give the opportunity for God to come in this moment further to you in a very personal way and touch you and receive prayer from a friend or one of these fine people down here have all been trained. We know them. We trust them. They're, they're, they're good, good people. You can trust sharing your stuff with them and and allowing them to pray for you. We do receive an offering, and uh, we're going to be great. Just let's, let's all pray and figure out what God wants to do. The way we receive an offering at the end of the service is if you have checks or cash, you can give at the boxes on the back by the doors on the way out. Uh, if you have never given before and you want to give and you haven't set this up, you can text go to quest to 77977. It'll send you back a secure link that you follow to give, and then it'll give you the option of downloading the app, and that integrates with the church app, and it makes giving really easy in the future. Thank you so much for your generosity. It's really been a good year, and, and, and we've done kind of the, the internal look of why, trying to figure out why August was way down, and there's actually, we couldn't find any reason. It's not people leaving. There's no reason. It's just it was a weird month that kind of put our backs against the wall a little bit cash-wise for right now. And if you can help out with that, I'd sure appreciate it. Uh, but do it with joy. Don't do it with, from compulsion for me. Don't do it from pressure. Give because you just want to be a part of what God's doing here. And you want to just enjoy that generosity. God bless. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Bring back a friend for the closing of the series PG. It's going to be another great message. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. 
If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.